So welcome to BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT. This is our Gem of All Mechanisms podcast. And today I'm speaking to Professor Tom Crick, uh, who I've known for quite a while, but I'm going to introduce him to you as an audience. <laughs> so uh, Tom does all sorts of stuff for BCS, but also does a lot of very interesting stuff in, in the education sort of policy area. And there's a lot to talk about there. So first of all, hello, Tom, and welcome. Thanks, Brian. Good to see you. Yeah, you too. So um, let, let's start off a little bit about your, your current sort of areas of research and interest, particularly in the, in the education space. Yeah, no problem. So I, I suppose so. I'm a, I'm a professor of digital and policy and deputy pro vice chancellor at Swansea University. Um, I am a computer scientist by by academic background, undergrad and PhD, and sort of I suppose a body of research over the last kind of ten years. But I suppose my work has increasingly been very digital and interdisciplinary. So kind of cutting across um, the sort of computer science, data science stuff. Um, I did a very theoretical PhD, which is around compiler optimization. But now it's sort of moved all the way through to um, STEM education, computer science education, curriculum reform, um, that wider education and skills piece, that real big kind of societal challenge, which you know, I think resonates really well with um, the BCS kind of making IT good for society. It goes through to economy and infrastructure. It goes through to health and social care. So there's that real broad view of, of the kind of impact of, of digital across every sphere of society and culture and economy. Um, and I suppose the pros and the cons. I think it's really interesting what's happened over the past. I mean, I guess since things like EU exit um, and certainly through COVID around clearly our dependency on digital and data infrastructure and, and the wonderful kind of empowering um, things it can do for, for people. But clearly there are kind of challenges. There's you know the, 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 the perils of algorithmic governance and transparency and bias and the impact this can have on certain people kind of communities and, and and certain demographics of society so it's how do you kind of find that balance both from a very technical side so you know the impact on uh, research innovation creating new and innovative and interesting things um and also actually that the wider sort of policy and practice ramifications lovely i mean you, you've got so many hats we can talk about i suppose uh, you know we, we won't juggle so many of them if we can avoid it but um you know, on the on the, you're very much obviously coming from a computer science background, but you're you're interested in the impact of sort of the general IT understanding in the wider public. Maybe we can talk about that bit. What are we getting right there, and, yeah. and where are the areas for work? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, it feels like it's a real big open question when we see, um, you know, will it ever be kind of solved? I mean, I suppose I think there's always been some of the work we've done, or certainly in Wales, where I've led a lot of the major science and technology curriculum reform over the past 10 years uh, with colleagues and we've just you know a new curriculum for Wales just started uh, this September so it's kind of phasing in, phasing in over the next couple of years I think that point around you know what what is the aspiration of some of this wider um, policy and and all the kind of wider reform around digital both education and skills and certainly a big economic imperative but that thing around like we want to have digitally confident and capable citizens. So, mm. you know, I think that that really, again, resonates with kind of BCS aspirations in this space. Um, you know, there's there's a clear economic imperative for, for the UK about kind of where we are positioned, what that looks like from a research and innovation perspective. But actually, I suppose some of the work has been around, you know, making sure this is much more citizen-centred and citizen-facing. So actually, these things aren't just being done to people under the guise, perhaps, of, you know, the benefits of major US tech companies and, you know, what happens to data, what happens to, you know, who reaps the benefit of this insight and innovation. And I think that that there, there's still some really big open questions about this around like how empowered are people through using 
some of these technologies. Sometimes it can be quite superficial and transient. Um, does it really benefit people? You know, we we see the wandering kind of connecting nature of social networks, and and actually you can have these. You can you can speak to people across the world. You can have friendships with people you've never met. You can have interesting discussions and and share content, etc. But actually, it's massively shaped public discourse and dialogue. And actually, it's become really polarized. So, like the very nature of things like regulation are kind of wending their way through. Uh, UK Parliament and actually asking some quite big questions so not only having say a, a digitally confident and capable citizenry like we also need to have digitally confident and capable elected representatives who are potentially making legislation in this space. Yeah and, and uh, you know without pinning it down too much how digitally competent do you think a lot of the people in those er in those those important policy positions actually are? I mean, I think that that's that is challenging. Um, I, I sort of say that with one of my hats on. So I sit on the Ofcom Advisory Committee for Wales, um, and, and I guess like this is something that's been, you know, certainly been discussed quite heavily around uh, what was happening with the online safety bill that was that was going through Parliament, and it looks like in some form will continue um, mm. in in this current uh, in this current sitting. Um, I, I think it's really variable. I suppose some of the, the work that you know I've been involved with in with the BCS in various kind of senior volunteer positions for for, for over ten years. I used to sit as a as on the board of a, an organization called the campaign for science and engineering and they used to ask very similar questions around you know where's the sort of science and engineering kind of capability within government so you know there were very few uh, politicians who had um, a science and technology or a stem degree and their kind of background so actually that's not to say we only you know you should you should determine who's who's electable or who who gets elected because of their academic background but clearly having that understanding and that kind of capability across all government, across politics and policymaking is really, really important, and perhaps more so now than ever. I guess it, it, it is really variable. Um, and I suppose you have to be quite pragmatic about many of these things are quite political. And they are, you know, they are promised in manifestos and, and people are, and, you know, certain parties or politicians are doing things for specific reasons. But I guess the real key thing is about how robust is that evidence informed and the evidence-based policymaking so what's the role of the science advisory mechanism in government what's the role of bcs and other you know um, stem engineering or stem um, professional bodies and learning societies to really make that case to make sure that we don't make catastrophic laws or have really punitive regulation which will be of no benefit to anyone will, pra will be practically impossible to implement and do and mm. actually will have a net negative impact on the uk I mean, that's interesting. The week we're recording this, obviously, this will come out later, so people have to look back. But the week we're recording this, we just had this new story come out about Palantir um, sort of trying to get their um, their data fingers in, into, uh, you know, health records, yeah. and all that sort of thing, uh, almost yeah. by stealth. Now, uh, encouraging people to learn about coding is not going to help them learn, uh, understand those principles, is it? So, so what do we need to raise that level of discourse? Yeah, I think that that is, I mean, that doesn't surprise me in any real way. If you've seen the stuff that's happened over the past kind of, say, eight to 10 years, where you remember kind of care.data in England, where there were some real concerns around like what was happening with health and social care data sharing. I mean, one, there's, I suppose, the one point that I always say, which is kind of, you know, with being multi-hatted. So another one of my hats, I, I'm a non-exec director or an independent member of Swansea Bay University Health Board. So, you know, I sit on one of the, the second biggest health board in Wales. And I think, you know, one, there are four, um, you know there are it's devolved so that actually the NHS is not one sort of homogenous organization mm -hmm. across the UK um, so there are separate uh, very very different kind of approaches to um, health and social care in Wales than there are say in England um, and I guess that how do you better um, engage with people to understand that this isn't about you know and it isn't and it shouldn't be about major 
tech companies just slurping up people's personal health data. Yeah. Um, I think I, I'd say COVID, uh, I would hope that COVID has, has perhaps changed people's perspectives around the real benefits of, of sharing health data, you know, open data, open research data, the benefits that can be ha- that can ha- that can take place on a global scale when this kind of coordinated effort for vaccine, for, you know, virus identification, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but that has a real benefit, I guess, you know, it has directly benefits people, it benefits citizens, it benefits um, society. I think people are clearly much more concerned, and I think quite rightly so, around you know my you know, personal health data being used and then sold and monetized, and actually no, having perhaps no control over it going forwards, or even worse, it having a negative impact on your um, the ability to get insurance or ability to yeah. get a mortgage or a, a job down the line. So actually losing control of that of that data is is really really painful, and I think that whole point around being better informed to make those sort of decisions, being able to clearly opt out and having explicit consent and, and the ability to do stuff. But I suppose making a real clear argument about this has a this could potentially have a massive impact from a public health, population health perspective. So that's the argument is like this actually benefits society and it hopefully will benefit individuals in specific kind of in specific ways. But it, mm. um, I think a lot of trust has been breached because of what's happened in the past. So actually there's not sometimes hasn't been enough transparency with things like data sharing. And I think people are really, really sceptical now. So actually, you know, you could argue, um, do do citizens trust governments to look after their personal data? And, mm. you know, do they? It's interesting that they are quite prepared to give Facebook and everyone else huge amounts of rich personal information, but then are really reluctant to give the government. And actually, I think there's a there has to be probably a bigger conversation about um uh, you know, kind of data ownership, personal data in general. Um, and I know the BBC, uh, there's a, the BCS have been doing lots of work in this space. Obviously, you know, great organisations like the Open Data Institute. And you know, how does this sit with a kind of wider policy making perspective? But clearly, this isn't going away. How do we better yeah. understand that we live in a data rich society, and it's going to have um, varied and good and bad uh, connotations for everyone going forward? It always used to strike me that there's a lot of talk, you know, learn coding. If you learn coding, that's that's the answer, which always seemed a little bit narrow to me. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that's it. Obviously, having been heavily involved in some of the curriculum reform work over the past kind of 10 years, I mean, it's, it's a real tension because I've, I've never liked that reductive argument as if learning how to program is the panacea for all problems. But clearly, it's a sort of a necessary condition to be able to better understand that the digital world is constructed and built. And I think that's that's probably where... You know, I think when some of the stuff was happening in England back in, say, 2011 onwards to um, the publication of the new curriculum, uh, the new uh, national curriculum in England in 2013, 2014, um, is around, there was so much focus on programming as an economic imperative to say, like, the UK needs, you know, this this sort of competitiveness in the global digital economy. We need to have loads of programmers. Like, yeah, yeah, we do. But then also not everyone's going to be a programmer. But then in the same breath, you could say, actually, I'd, I'd like to have everyone who finishes compulsory education to understand that, you know, computers aren't magic black boxes and, and you know, the software isn't this scary thing. It, you know, it's, it's designed, programmed and built by humans. So actually, you need to understand that from sort of just to understand the world. So, we, you know, we, we talk about teaching algebra, you know, the fundamental force of nature. If you don't understand the digital world, I think you're you're at a you were doing our young people a disservice. And I think that was a real it was the granularity of that argument and it, it got very focused on programming. Clearly cro- programming is important, but actually just the very nature of understanding how things are constructed in the digital world is probably the really powerful thing going forward for everyone. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I think that sounds very sensible. I mean, I was thinking about the fact that in if you do a computer science degree, there there there, there are ethics components to those anyway, aren't there? Automatically, um, I, I suppose if we go back to the the, the curriculum before that, is there so much of that those concepts put forward? I mean, we wouldn't call it ethics probably because it would bore them to death, but. Um, is there enough in, in in our earlier curriculums about this sort of stuff, the implications of it? I, I think it's probably not as explicit as it probably it probably is now um, and probably is also because I think sadly or, you know, good and bad, it's really easy to exemplify um, the kind of legal, social, ethical considerations and the impacts of technology. So, you know, I think that's this is something that, that comes through really clearly, you know, maybe more so outside of compulsory education when you look at things like qualifications and you look at things like say computer science degrees at university having that kind of legal social ethical professional piece running all the way through the course is a real key aspect and actually that you know for things like bcs degree accreditation and mm. professional body kind of thinking about like, what's that look like from a graduate perspective you know if we're producing graduates to go and work in really diverse industries and roles then actually you want them to understand the ramifications of the types of technologies they create and you can't just say, well, I've written a piece of code. It's, it's you know, whoever uses it in, in a dodgy way is kind of is up to them. You do have a, you know, that, that kind of re responsible and ethical um, uh, development and use of technology. I think that comes through way, way stronger now, but partly because we've probably seen the negative aspects of that you know, really clearly in society. So, yeah. you know, we can understand. So, you know, there's, there, I mean, there's so many bad examples of this. It's kind of horrifying to draw attention to, but, you know, in the sense of, there's software that's used in the US uh, kind of legal system at different state levels where mm. if, fundamentally, if you're an African-American yeah. with the same characteristics as, as, a, as a white American, you're unlikely to get parole compared to the same, uh, exactly the same person. Because, or a longer jail sentence. That's yeah, like, exactly. And, and that's yeah. because of the it's, the, it's the training data. It was, mm. it was developed on. It's the wider kind of, you know, there's, there's not, it's understanding about how this software can be used and, and sort of used and abused in the real world. And then it provides a sort of patina of, um, of credibility because, well, this is fair because the computer has said no. And I think that's a real, that's where we talk about kind of genuine sort of societal, digital competence or you know we understanding that we live in a computational data-driven digital world is to say mm. that actually it's like you know that might be the case but it's been fed poor data or the data is inconclusive or it's about the granularity of the data and that's kind of where we would like to get to in the in the sort of longer term future but that's there's a lot of work to be done to 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 raise that the, that better understanding and you know clearly not everyone's going to be um, you know, is going to be able to kind of uh, articulate the computational complexity of algorithms and the wider impact of stuff. But actually, you understand that these things, um, they are not perfect. They are not always right. The data they have is incomplete. Um, and they make they do make incorrect decisions. And that there yeah. should be a way of, of that being much more accountable and, and governed and having more assurance in how these systems run and, and work and do the right things for people, not just for the efficiency yeah. of processes. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I've also you've got a quite an interesting sort of overview here because you're also the editor of Computer Journal, aren't you? So we're going right to the other end here, sort of cutting oh, no. search. So, what what are you seeing there that's that's kind of exciting you, or, or or maybe giving you some ideas as to how these things could be improved? Yeah, so it's, it's full spread. So obviously, the Computer Journal is um, is one of the oldest, um, mm. uh, I suppose, computer sort of broad computer science journal um, that serves the kind of academic computer science research community. Um, it's been around since in, since 1953, um, and obviously it's a BCS journal with the Oxford University Press. 
Um, so yeah, I took over being editor in chief uh, last January, so January 2021. Lost track of time. Time flies when you're <laughs> when you're in a global pandemic. Um, yeah, That's and I think half that, years, Tom, yeah, yeah, I know. Oh my <laughs> word, yeah. Um, I mean, I think it sort of really reinforces that kind of point we've just been speaking around um, around data driven research and computational in computationally interesting research. So, you know, it, it has quite a in many kind of cases quite a theoretical bent but there's there's a, there's a huge sort of body of work around i guess computational intelligence data science you know that has that ai machine learning kind of aspect so like applying this these approaches to this data set to better understand um you know to be more efficient and find a more optimal approach or to gain better insight into specific kind of domain problems and that's there's been an explosion of that type of research over the past kind of few years and we're seeing so many kind of papers and submissions in that broader area i think that's really interesting because it clearly shows um you know we know that ai machine learning is just such a hot area in the sort of global you know, it's a big thing for the UK. It's a big thing for the UK kind of computer science research community. It's a big thing for the funding councils. But actually, it's that balance of sort of saying, um, how rigorous and robust is this research? Is it good research? Does it give us better insight? Is it really incremental? Is it giving us any insight into how these how these things actually work? Um, and also, there's that wider point around things like reproducibility and verifiability and being able to, if someone says, like, I have, I can demonstrate that my approach is 5% faster than the current state of the art, is actually, you know, is that independently verifiable? Can we reproduce those results? Do you have the open data to, to showcase that, um, that independent researchers can check those results? And again, that's a real big change in the wider kind of academic research community around, um, you know, open research, open data, uh, open, you know, kind of being able to share and verify um, academic results, because essentially that's, that's, that's how this stuff stands on its own is to, to ensure that is independently verifiable. So it is interesting. I think, I mean, I think we're seeing that as a, as a wider trend, you, you can see across loads of disciplinary areas where you see the application of AI and machine learning and certainly kind of computational approaches to, to solving problems or to obtaining insight into interesting problem domains um and actually like how are we how are we kind of managing that for the journal um so i mean we're getting lots of submissions i think you know we're really pleased with how the um i think the journal has been on a real real strong journey over the last few years um which kind of comes through from the my 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 uh, uh professor steve ferber is the previous editor-in-chief but also just a, a fantastic kind of wider editorial team both um PCS no UP, but certainly my kind of deputy editors. I think just like thinking about where we want the computer journal, like where it is now and kind of where we want it to be in five years time to kind of better serve that um, international computer science uh, academic research community. Yeah, um, obviously it's very well respected and, and, and we know that it's one of our sort of, um, you know, sort of little golden golden threads, isn't it, the journal. I. I have an interest. Uh, I have a question, something that, that's interested me for quite a while about when things move out of the domain of being in in in, a, in an academic journal like that in the form of a paper, and then come out into the big wide world and are applied in some way. Whether you think that that process is too fast, and this goes back to that bit of software you're <laughs> mentioning that that assist that, that was supposed to assist judges in America make sentencing decisions now. It was. It reminds me of that little thing in Jurassic Park. You know, they they were so busy thinking about whether they could, <laughs> they didn't think about whether they should. And yeah. it seems that it's too far. It's out there now, and it's it's caused damage already. Was it really thought through thoroughly? And what can we do about that kind of situation? Yeah, I know. I mean, that's that's a is a classic classic mm. quote um, uh, from Jurassic Park. I mean, I mean, I think that's that is a 
I think that's a perennial problem with when you when you think about kind of research and innovation in general. So you can't you can't undiscover or um, no. you know un you know kind of uncreate things. I mean, I think that's really really challenging, particularly in a sort of a um, in a computational kind of digital sense, when you you are able you can demonstrate that you're able to do things, and actually, if it requires, you know it's a an algorithm or it's an approach and you've got a data set to do to, to do it too then you can't not make that happen i guess it goes back to the point you said around that kind of wider um responsible research and innovation and actually kind of having an, an underlying kind of ethics approach and i guess that's why you know this has been really clear from the bcs and other professional engineering societies um both in, in the uk and internationally is to sort of say like this is a key consideration actually this is there are, we are talking about kind of legal um social ethical kind of professional considerations of what we do um and i i think that is that is still difficult because these things can be weaponized they can be used uh mm. for good and for bad um and i and i suppose that that's just the very nature of you know of like of how this stuff works i i'm i think in many instances it's i think it's risky to then think about punitive or perhaps naive regulation of some of this stuff mm. you know <laughs> it always it always reminds me back in the in the kind of 90s i suppose when perhaps when i was first getting on the internet but it always made me laugh when the united states government classified cryptography or certain kind of uh you know high strength encryption as a munition because it so it had export controls but but that was, so that just meant you you could only download a, a lower you know like a 56 bit version of internet explorer as yeah. opposed to a high strength and and it's sort of futile isn't it because yeah. it's a bit like you know like but like banning encryption it's like well it's just a it's a mathematical um articulation of of you know like public key cryptography it's like well you you, you can ban that specific instance of it but once now it's known people can just recreate it from scratch in another jurisdiction so it's really yeah. really challenging to ban this stuff yeah. and, I, and i guess that's one of my kind of overarching things for you know as a high principle about how how the uk may approach regulating the global internet or, or perhaps our part of it if that's a perception of our part of it mm. because actually you know unless there is much more kind of parity and, and sort of coordinated approach to some of this stuff then you know it will be futile in many many ways. So yeah. uh, you know we we can we can say that Facebook has to do this sort of stuff, but what they'll largely do is just make sure that's not visible in a UK under a UK IP address. Yeah. Um. And and I think that's a real challenge for how do you these kind of supranational um, major kind of US tech companies or, or major tech companies is actually in many mm -hmm. ways if we if we agree there are things that that can and should be done and are of benefit for society and citizens. Um, then there has to be a much more coordinated effort because there's no way that the UK can just do this stuff on its own. No, absolutely. Um, that's been really interesting, Tom. And I, I, I really enjoyed the fact that you've got so many different sort of angles on this. Uh, now, there's one question I ask nearly everybody that um, I, I use <laughs> on the podcast here, which is about your personal sort of inspiration. I'm talking about people, inspirational people that you look to and and, and that, you've, that you like to follow or whatever, you know, just so that... Um, that's a great question. That's a great people, question. People can um, nick it and follow themselves, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose, <laughs> yeah. That I, that's. I think there's there's lots of people who I suppose I've. Um, I mean, sort of. Prof I mean, I suppose even going kind of going back to why I first got involved with the BCS. So you know, mm. I, I joined the BCS as a as a young whippersnapper undergraduate student when I was doing my uh, computer science degree at Bath, um, and that was James Professor James Davenport's fault. Who okay, uh, yeah. I've, I've worked with a lot over the past kind of. 20-ish years um both I suppose as a, as a student but also then as a as a 
kind of co-collaborator with research and we've both been heavily involved in the BCS in, in various forms over mm. that time. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting, I sort of maybe kind of view it through the lens of engaging through the BCS because actually it's sort of, there's some interesting discussions about, you know, why would you join a professional body or a learning society? You know, you, pay, you essentially sometimes pay money to end up doing work for them. Um, but actually, I think there's a real big discussion, you know, now more than ever, around why it's really valuable to be involved in, in a, an organisation like the BCS. So the ability to shape and influence some of this, this policy that's kind of happening right now and having the weight and voice and credibility of, of an organisation like the BCS to, to really shape and influence that. And I think it's it's difficult, you know, and I've been, a, um, you know, all the way through, I've been from, uh, you know, chair of the Young Professionals Group, I've been an elected member of council, I've been a trustee board member i've been a vice president and you know various other things across lots of committees and, and structures and i suppose like that has exposed me to an amazingly diverse and interesting um broader it and computing uh community across the uk so i've met people that i've done work with i've written papers with i've you know i've done policy stuff with um had a good laugh with and i think you know there's a real kind of strong kind of professional connection across people that I, you know, I, I, I speak to and work with all the time. And um, yeah, and I suppose, you know, people have been mentors to me. Um, you know, there's people who've, who've been long, long-term long collaborators with me. And I, I like to think I'm kind of maybe doing that the other way, kind of giving, giving something back as well. Um, and, and I suppose, you know, maybe sort of slightly directly answering your question is, um, you know, even to the point of there's that sort of visibility and advocacy piece. So, you know, I think mm. it can be quite challenging to be on social media nowadays and certainly way more challenging than a... Um, than a boring white male middle-aged professor like me um but i think actually being able to be involved in these in these um in these important discussions and actually being able to stand up for some of those positions and to be able to to sort of shape and influence some of these discussions and and to kind of perhaps critique government policy you know in a very evidence-based balanced kind of way is really really important nowadays because um it's increasingly challenging you know we we can yeah. see things are heavily politicized and they are they can be difficult you can be very polarized you're either for something or you're against something and i think that's where it's been a real benefit to me kind of professionally and and, and things that i'm intellectually interested in and that's been through the bcs so um yeah that, i mean there's a lot I, I wouldn't want to embarrass many people of people who i would <laughs> have, have genuinely um uh, i have there's a sort of a few people who are have been long-standing kind of friends and mentors to me um they know who they are and i and i and i, I speak to them frequently but um i won't embarrass them on the podcast but yeah and and, and, and a lot of them i've I, you know many of them i've met through the bcs i guess okay oh that's good cool. well i mean that's a that's a good little ad for us and and totally unprompted listeners as well um <laughs> <laughs> what about the um i'm just thinking about some of the bigger thinkers type is there anybody you look to who think you think's got quite a good futuristic view i mean People used to look to Elon Musk for that sort of thing. I don't think he's quite got the credibility. I always no. think about Ray Kurzweil with his sort yeah, of exactly. stuff. Yeah, exactly. You know. It's tough. I think that's a really good example about, and again, maybe it goes back to the point about social media, about you have access to these people in a, in a, in a, way, in a way that you've never had access to these people before. I guess it's the same as... Um, you know, you've never had insight into the mind of a sitting president of the United States who used to just tweet with at a whim. Um, yeah. that, you know, and I guess that's the, probably the best bit of intel you know the, the the Soviets would have paid big money for that in the in the 1980s when you've got you know the un the unfiltered thoughts of a U.S. president. Um, yeah. I, and I suppose like that's kind of been that's amazing and also quite kind of you know is sort of disconcerting to be able to you know I, th I think that's something really powerful for computer science as a discipline or an IT as a discipline where you can speak to 
some of the genuine pioneers or the first or maybe the second generation pioneers of the discipline are you know they are still alive they are speaking they are working that you know and actually you can hear their thoughts and and be connected into this into this community um sometimes that's great and sometimes that can be quite challenging because actually um you know you know what's that thing you know, never meet your hero that can mm. heroes that can sometimes mm. be quite painful yeah. i guess you know people like you know, kind of elon musk and you know there's no doubt his um his impact on society has been has been massive um lots of good ways perhaps lots of um challenging ways um i i i think it's it's interesting how how people then view what does the role of technology look like going forward so i i i, I some of my kind of concerns are around how does this empower the kind of the average citizen to better understand the digital technological world? Because, you know, you can always say like, oh, this will be really beneficial to you. Oh, this will make your life really easier. Just sign up for this monthly subscription for the rest of your life. Or, you know, just buy this service or, you know, have install this app on your iPhone. But actually, I still think that in my, that sort of raises some bigger concerns around how citizen centered it is, how empowering is, you know, uh, some of these technologies and innovations. And I suppose ultimately who owns it, where does, who benefits and, and where does the data go? So, you know, I think there's a real, that's where it kind of goes back to that point around health and social care data, or, you know, when there are major government uh, initiatives in, in these spaces is actually, I suppose, a lot of my kind of fundamental questions are around how does this benefit citizens? Is this citizen centered? Yeah. Is it you know, sort of user centered design type stuff? It's like, is this being is this being done for the benefit of the citizens um or you know in health and social care is it patient centered or is it learner centered in education or is this great for a big us tech company who's going to slurp up all the data and that's not having yeah. a dig at us tech companies i just think it's you know actually well why don't we think about how that could be a, a wider benefit and we could share the outcomes of this and i think yeah. um you know, i think that that that's some of my overriding questions and i think that doesn't come through in some of that discussion when you see some of these kind of you know leading tech uh, tech figures because ultimately they want you to buy their products and services so i think that should be in the back of your mind that should be the kind of ever overarching thing you know and i'm this is me who's locked into an apple uh, an apple ecosystem um and has been for a long long time you know and i and i i'm very aware of um the products and services that i use and the type of data that you know i'm I, I cycle, I'm on Strava, you know, I, I use Twitter and LinkedIn professionally. I came off Facebook quite a while ago, having been on it since the very, very early days as a student. Um, but, you know, actually that, that, that kind of informed consent of understanding about, you know, who, who benefits from this sort of stuff. But I don't think that's the, that's the general case. And I think that's yeah. part of that piece around like, how do we better um, sort of support people in understanding, you know, there's that education piece um, and to, you know, and to also to push back against some of this stuff. So actually to, you know, it's interesting when you think about, sorry, long, long rant, uh, you've got me started now, the whole thing about um, <laughs> when you think about kind of legislation in this space, things like, um, uh, you know, Investigative Powers Act was never going to be a doorstep issue, but you'd really want, mm. you'd really want voters to understand what are the powers of kind of government agencies to routinely monitor electronic communications. And that's not, yeah. that's, you know, I think that, that that's just a, that's just an important sort of societal discussion. You know, that's an agreed thing about, you know, what is fair, um, reach and oversight, uh, judicial oversight of some of these um, some of these um, powers, and I don't think that's ever really happened. So actually, you know, that that's not a good thing for society. That's not a good thing for people understanding about how this stuff mm. works. And you know, also, it's not just about just trust us, we're okay. I think yeah. you know, I, I think there is something really to think about openness and transparency, mm. and and having these open discussions about you know, there are good bits and there are potentially bad bits, and there is would be 
judicial oversight and there'll be kind of regulation of how this stuff could be used but i think that you know that that's because we don't we we aren't able to have that sort of granular discussion when it comes around to elections because it's all you know understandably it's about things like healthcare or it's about education or it's about the economy and actually all these things are interconnected with because of digital mm. Mm. absolutely yeah yeah thank you uh, thank you for that Tamia. let me just turn my uh, apple watch off hold on yeah i know, I know actually, <laughs> I've, I've turned all of my devices off and they're all uh yeah bluetooth <laughs> and everything yeah exactly this is an alexa on my desk as well so you yeah. know we are we are you know i think that's you know, i i say that but then i suppose i am also tapped into that system and, and and i have a dependency on it because it, it allows my life to run a bit easier yeah, absolutely yeah no i think we're on the same boat there aren't we uh, can i say thank you so much for talking to us today uh, tom i really enjoyed that appreciate your time thank you cheers brian <laughs>